Welcome to Eye to Eye, the podcast of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. My name is Sunil Mamtora, and I will be your host. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Ramsey, a retina specialist, as well as the chair in innovation at the Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in Massachusetts. David, thank you so much for joining me today to speak about your really interesting paper in Eye, entitled The Underdiagnosis of Glaucoma in Patients with Exudative Age-Related Macular Degeneration. Now, before we go into too much detail about the specifics of the paper, I was just wondering if you could just perhaps give a brief summary and overview to the listeners about your paper. Well, thank you, Sunil, for the opportunity to speak to you about the underdiagnosis of glaucoma in patients with age-related macular degeneration. I admire the eye-to-eye podcast series and have access to a great many of your episodes over the past year. I also want to thank the Royal College of Ophthalmologists for making this program possible. Sunil, I'd also like to acknowledge my co-author on this paper, Dr. Barak Mergen, an ophthalmologist at Istanbul Basak Shahir Jam Sakura City Hospital. As a retina specialist, I encounter many patients with retinal diseases, but over the course of my years in practice, I've also found that there are many patients that have more than one condition. And it was the experience of interacting with one such patient who I was treating for age-related wet macular degeneration rather successfully in one eye that I discovered some months later that I had overlooked the diagnosis of glaucoma in their fellow eye. As a retina specialist, we often focus our attentions on these immediate and pressing needs of treating wet age-related macular degeneration, for example, by giving injections, monitoring their progression, and uh, oftentimes seeing them uh, require multiple treatments over many, many months. With so many visits, you would think that there would be more than ample time to follow up and care for all the different issues that one such patient may have. But in this particular case, I discovered several months later, turning my attention back to the other eye that didn't have wet macular degeneration, that I had apparently overlooked what appeared to be obvious glaucoma. And so I had the initiative of uh, sending this patient to one of my colleagues, Dr. Michael Cooper, who very kindly took over the care of the glaucoma for this patient. Glaucoma, thankfully, is typically a slow and progressive optic neuropathy, though not in all cases. And so for this particular patient, I don't think any harm was done. But it certainly got me to thinking about this potential need in retina to look carefully at patients that may have more than one condition. And glaucoma in particular is one that we don't want to overlook. Mm, Of course. It's it's really interesting that you've said that glaucoma is underdiagnosed in this patient group. In in your study, how how did you become sure of this conclusion? Well, we took the approach of reviewing the medical records in our electronic medical record system, looking at the number of times that certain codes were, were billed and looked at different classes of patients within the appropriate age range where these diseases would be very likely to co-occur. The literature is actually very controversial as to whether or not glaucoma is actually more common or less common within patients with macular degeneration or specifically wet macular degeneration. Uh, And so I, I didn't set out to really address that question, but to address the question about whether or not we were very likely under diagnosing whether this condition was present in the same patient at the same time. And we did this by looking at a, uh, another diagnosis, dry eye, that is also well known to be associated with age, but should have no particular association 
uh, to any greater extent or lesser extent with patients with macular degeneration. So using that as a control group, we were able to compare the rate of diagnosis of glaucoma amongst those who are treated for wet macular degeneration as compared with those with dry macular degeneration relative to this reference group to determine if the rates at which we were identifying the disease after controlling for age were different. And we found that they were. Uh, and so this led me to the hypothesis, uh, one which I'm not able to actually prove or, or even fully address by this research, it would require other work, that we as busy retina specialists, we may not be diagnosing certain diseases because we're so focused on a pressing, potentially blinding condition, age-related macular degeneration, that we may be delaying the diagnosis of other conditions. We're not always serving our patient's best interests. Maybe we've got too much of a laser focus within the temporal arcades and we need to expand our horizons then. That's a, that's a very good analogy. Although we don't do laser or PDT therapy very much, we typically rely on intravitreal injections, which interestingly enough themselves can be one of the causes for elevated eye pressure uh, or the development of glaucoma. Patients who receive regular intravitreal injections are more common to be diagnosed with ocular hypertension forms of glaucoma to develop a need to take high pressure lowering medications uh, or to require the care of a subspecialist. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really made me think reading your paper that whether those multiple injections, you know, subsequently those micro traumas of IOP spikes in these patients, you know, the changes in scleral rigidity as a result of giving all these injections, you know, could that actually be a cumulative optic nerve insult? which could increase the likelihood of developing glaucomatous optic nerve damage in the long term. So that, that's certainly a, a very important hypothesis, but there are potentially other parts of the eye too that may sustain uh, microtraumas or other changes biomechanically as a result of the delivery of these small intravitreal injections of agent. Uh, the angle in particular, the trabecular meshwork, which may undergo biomechanical strain. I also think about the drugs themselves or their excipients that may be at least partially responsible for the changes in interocular pressure that we see in these patients. Whether these lead to glaucoma or are a contributing factor uh, has yet to be determined. Mm, that's really, really interesting and uh, definitely food for thought. You know, David, in the UK, uh, we're quite lucky that our patients who see us in our retina clinic also see their optometrists in the community and that's at least usually every two years or so and when the patient goes to see their community optometrists they're usually screened for their general eye health including glaucoma so in a way that's a kind of a safety net for those patients in case we've missed out the optic discs uh, during our retina follow-ups do you have any safety net or fallback in your, in the American healthcare setting? Well, Suno, that's a very good question. I think I'm very lucky to practice at the Leahy Hospital and Medical Center where we're a cooperative group practice with a number of highly trained ophthalmologists and optometrists who I readily utilize to help care for all the ophthalmic needs of my patients. Uh, and in particular, my patients who are coming for regular treatments for active wet macular degeneration, they will periodically see either an optometrist for a refraction within our practice or one of our very talented low vision specialists within the practice, uh, depending on their needs. Uh, and very commonly, these are the opportunities that we have to ensure that all the other things that need to be done to screen in older and high-risk populations are, are accomplished. Uh, this is how I, in particular, have ensured that I don't miss glaucoma. Uh, I utilize my fellow practitioners' 
to ensure that all the needs of my patients are met. And in all your patients, do you measure intraocular pressure at every visit? We do, yes. In every visit, patients receive an intraocular pressure check, typically in both eyes, or at very least in the eye which is receiving the injection. And it's interesting, we observed in our paper that we are measuring these pressures, and there is evidence that in some cases they may be uh, higher than is typical forms of ocular hypertension, which for the immediate visit may not be a problem, but in the long run could be a sign of another problem, possibly even a sign of glaucoma or another disease. Uh, so although we're measuring pressure, we're using this to guide our treatment in the moment. We may not always be looking over the horizon uh, at what this might have in terms of meaning down the road for our patients. Now, on the flip side, by having this data at our fingertips, it does give us the opportunity to review, whether it be periodically uh, or in a very regimented way, as we did in our paper, to determine if there is cause for uh, looking for other diseases or an underdiagnosis of a problem, potentially. Sure, that sounds like a very holistic approach. And just out of interest, how do you actually measure the intraocular pressure? Is it with Goldman Applanation Tonometry, or do you use eye care or a tonopen? Well, that's a good question. At the time period that this paper was conducted, a majority of those eye pressures, probably fully three quarters or more, was me measured by means of Goldman Applanation Tonometry. But over the last year or two, and accelerated by the COVID epidemic, we have switched to using the eye care tonometer for most of our measures. This seems to be more efficient, uh, and effective uh, for the delivery of eye care in fast retina-paced visits. Mm, yeah, for sure. And you know, the, the screening of, for glaucoma, I think it requires more than just intraocular pressure because you know, glaucoma is, as, a, as a disease is an entity that requires an evaluation of not just the appearance of the optic nerve, but its function. So do you routinely perform OCTs of the optic disc or the retinal nerve fiber layer? That's a very good question. We routinely obtain macular OCTs uh, in a, on an occasional basis, particularly in a targeted fashion. We do retinal nerve fiber layer OCT testing as well. Due to the way the American healthcare system works, these tests are, are bundled. So there's not really an incentive for physicians to order extra testing, especially testing which would not be reimbursed typically. Uh, so unless it's something done very specifically and deliberately, uh, it may not be done as commonly as it should be for some patients. Now, I, I, although there is some evidence that screening for optic nerve disease by means of optical coherence tomography can be highly effective and very sensitive, there's also the problem faced by patients that have retinal and particularly macular disease as this can impact the neurofiber layer uh, and the ganglion cell complex can be lost for other reasons than glaucoma or other optic neuropathies. I like to use the analogy of the abnormal retinal neurofiber layer patterns that are commonly seen in highly myopic eyes. This is not necessarily a sign of any sort of optic nerve disease, just a function of the way the eye is. Uh, the key, of course, with glaucoma is that it is a progressive optic neuropathy. So it's not so much just measuring it, but also looking for change within these metrics that would guide and, and inform us as to whether the patient has disease. Yeah, so that's a really important and interesting, interesting comment that you've just made there, that the interpretation of the OCTs of the optic discs may be stilted somewhat by the presence of macular disease, which affects the way we interpret that. And I think for sure it's, it's all about the progression uh, and the interpretation of those serial scans. 
to try and help make a decision. And maybe in the future we can rely on machine learning or artificial intelligence to help us to flag when patients have, you know, disc damage, which is more suggestive of glaucoma rather than more of a feature of macular degeneration. I think in, in, in several ways that's going to be a natural progression out of even our macular imaging. There's a lot of information from the highly packed ganglion cells within the macula. And we know that there's a lot of information that can be used either through algorithms or artificial intelligence to detect differences that may be unexplained by the underlying macular degeneration. But it becomes very complicated when there are more than one thing present in a patient. It can be very difficult to dissect or segregate these. You're right that having a artificial intelligence or some sort of decision support aid to flag those patients that may be less than typical could be very helpful. Mm. You know, going back to the point where you mentioned that requesting tests in the American healthcare system uh, because of their perceived need to not be as necessary to the patient's complaint, you know, for example, requesting OCT of the optic disc, you know, do you think perhaps that could be overcome with a new generation of OCT technology? For example, the most recent Zeiss Cirrus 6000 has wide field OCT, which in the same swoop will do an OCT of the disc and the macula at the same time. It's a very good observation. I think that as we are imaging more, we may see more and detect more, but we're only going to find the problem if we look for it. So it really, we need to circle back to the point that we need to be very deliberate uh, in the steps that we take to ensure that we're not overlooking something. It's not enough to just take a picture, but we need to properly interpret the data that we get out of it. Mm, of course. And, you know, visual fields, again, that's a whole can of worms and a, a difficult test to interpret potentially in patients with wet AMD because if patients have poor vision you know, they struggle to perform the visual field test reliably too. And also with age it can be very difficult for individuals to uh, manipulate uh, the visual field device in order to record it. Patients may also have other conditions that preclude their ability to do visual fields requiring us to rely on other other means, including, but not limited to imaging or sometimes electrophysiological methods. Though oftentimes if central visual function is compromised, some of those tests may be unreliable as well. But others like the photopic negative response can give you a sum of the global performance of the uh, ganglion cell uh, network. And in doing so can sometimes detect asymmetry or evidence of disease. But again, these highly specialized tests are, are not necessarily cost-effective or, or universally available. They're really uh, best serving individual cases, difficult diagnostic dilemmas, or other such decision points. Mm -hmm. you know, David, you mentioned that the association with glaucoma and wet age-related macular degeneration is, is quite tenuous and potentially quite controversial. But I was wondering, are you able to tell us about any of the literature which explores the link between the rate of diagnosis of glaucoma in these patients compared to patients who don't have wet AMD? The rate of glaucoma in patients with macular degeneration varies widely within the literature. There are a number of reports that have shown rather similar rates to what we have shown in our study. Uh, and in particular, a recent nationwide claims-based data in a large Medicare population found a significantly higher rate of glaucoma-related diagnoses in patients with exudative macular degeneration compared to the rate in our study. They found around 25%, whereas we found around 19%. But the differences between this claims-based and our uh, study, which was based on billing records, uh, is that this study did not really further differentiate glaucoma by subtype. 
in our study population, in contrast, is derived from a hospital-based outpatient clinic, which serves as glaucoma and retinal referral center. So it seems very unlikely with so many subspecialists in both retina and glaucoma that we would be necessarily missing the diagnosis. I think, if anything, we, we may actually be more accurate and more precise in defining what is glaucoma versus what may just be a suspicion for glaucoma. That's something, of course, that our uh, chart biopsy, if you will, or our chart review is not able to actually define. We found characteristics based on the review of the medical records that could be indicative of a risk of glaucoma, but it's not possible through a chart review to actually diagnose that disease. What was, I think, quite telling, however, is that only around a quarter of the patients that we identified with these risk factors would need to be added back to the group with uh, exudative macular degeneration to normalize the rates, at least statistically speaking. So I think it is very likely that there is evidence that we are underdiagnosing, but just how serious a problem that is and whether it actually impacts vision or visual outcomes is not determined. And are you looking at any further work to research this question further? Well, that's a good question, yeah. So we're, we're actually working on developing tools in the electronic medical record to facilitate uh, better and more efficient referrals for glaucoma, as well as currently retrospectively looking to identify patients that may have uh, higher risk features that could have been overlooked so that we can notify providers so that they can pay more attention to these potential problems that patients have. So in the data when you review in your study, did you notice a significant difference in the diagnosis of glaucoma between patients with dry AMD and wet AMD? So, you know, that's a wonderful question. We did indeed observe that there was a significant a lower rate of diagnosed glaucoma or suspicion for glaucoma in patients with exudative macular degeneration compared to those with non-exudative forms. Of course, the vast majority of patients with macular degeneration have the so-called dry type. The non-exudative macular degeneration patients often don't come as often. Uh, and when they do come, they're coming more commonly for comprehensive eye examination. So the retina specialist in particular, I think, is disadvantaged by virtue of the fact that there are so many visits and you see the patients for short intervals, highly focused on a specific task, that it makes, it makes it difficult, unless you're very conscientious about it, to schedule in the full and comprehensive eye exam that's necessary for picking up these other conditions, not the least of which is glaucoma. David, I hope you don't mind me you know, straying from the topic of conversation we're on at the moment to just ask you something that I'm sure many of the listeners would be very, very interested and curious about. And that is, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, how has your retina service changed uh, as a result of you know, the need for social distancing and the changes uh, as a result of the pandemic? With the COVID-19 pandemic, it has created a great need to improve efficiency and streamline patient flow. During the pandemic, the Leahy Hospital Medical Center never shut down. We remained open for patient care, not only in ophthalmology, but across all of our specialties, uh, whereas many practices necessarily had to curtail their activities. We maintained a very high level of care during even the peak of the uncertainty in the early pandemic. And the retina service in particular, we delivered and served approximately 60% of the patient volume we did in the pre-pandemic era, even during the most uncertain 
and perilous times. Thankfully, we were provided and afforded the protective gear that we required in order to see our patients. But importantly, we redesigned our practice to accelerate patients into and out of visits so that we could deliver the medications they need, do only the evaluations that were absolutely essential to deliver safe care, and get them out and back home where they can shelter in place. We were very effective in what we were able to do. We were able to serve all the patients who were willing to come. And some of the practices that we adopted have continued on on the other side of these periods during the pandemic. For example, we now more commonly than not, we may measure eye pressure just in the eye receiving the injection. We may not always dilate the eye before we give an injection. These steps taken, streamlining the visits, allow us to continue to be more efficient at moving patients. And as our numbers have returned closer to pre-pandemic levels, we're serving now over 90% of the volume that we did before the pandemic occurred. We're able to do so in a much more efficient way. And our patient satisfaction results also reflect this. Patients who have come for care during this period demonstrate significantly higher levels of patient satisfaction related to the interactions during their visits and the services delivered than they did in the period immediately before the pandemic. Mm. During the peak of the pandemic, did you find that there was a significant number of your patients who didn't want to come for their injections? There was, and we turned to telehealth video and phone calls in order to reach out to these patients, those with age-related macular degeneration, diabetes, glaucoma, and other conditions that required regular and necessary treatment. We made phone calls and we had our staff assist in this as well. Uh, this was very successful and with uh, delivery of these telehealth services, we were able to provide certainly a degree of reassurance during difficult and strained times. We were able to provide a lot of patient education about eye health and the need for treatment. And for those patients who are willing to come in for treatment, we were able to provide them the reassurance necessary that we had transformed our practice in order to protect them during the outbreak of COVID-19. That's really, really interesting. So one final question I would have is, you know, what would your message be to your fellow retina specialist, listener, or you know, any colleague who might be listening to this podcast who does look after patients with wet macular degeneration? Well, I think this project has taught me that it's very important to know that we can't do everything at every visit, but it's very important to be methodical in how we care about our patients. Partnering with other eye care providers, especially our talented ophthalmologists and optometrists, who do very important and necessary things beyond the scope of practice of the retina specialist, is the best way to ensure all of our patients' needs are met. As you alluded to, in the United Kingdom, patients may be referred on to their community providers for refraction, at which time screening can be done for other conditions. I think if retina providers are very busy and working in a fast-paced environment, it's important to delegate those tasks very specifically to those individuals who are able to carry them out effectively for our patients. Sure. And how has your practice changed specifically as a result of the findings of your study? So as a result of this research, I have transformed my practice in that I look more carefully at the details in the electronic medical record, look at the optic nerve, look at the historical eye pressures to ensure that there's no obvious 
retinal process that I'm missing related to glaucoma. But almost more importantly, I ensure that I am partnering with my fellow providers who work with me in a cooperative group practice environment to ensure that all the patient's needs are met. As you said, in the UK, patients are often referred back to their community optometrist for a refraction. I'm lucky to work alongside many talented ophthalmologists and optometrists at the Leahy Hospital and Medical Center, and I rely upon these providers to meet the needs of the, these patients of mine who may very well have uh, glaucoma. If I identify it, I have a certain group of patients that I can refer to a specialist if it appears that that would be the way to best serve their needs. Uh, but if the patients don't have that issue, having the optometry service take care of them has been a tremendous benefit. Mm. Well, David, that's been a really enjoyable conversation. I've learned so much, and I think I think I will be actually reflecting a bit more on the optic discs that I review of the patients who I care for who have wet macular de degeneration. So thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed it. Sunil, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for these very stimulating questions and wonderful conversation. I hope again to be back to eye to eye. Registration for the 2021 College Congress, which takes place between the 24th and 27th of May, is now open. This year, Congress will be fully virtual with all 30 hours of sessions being available on demand after the event. Pricing reflects the virtual nature of the meeting and is the lowest cost Congress in 15 years. As always, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to get involved, talk about your work or have any feedback, send us a message at communications at rcops.ac.uk.